and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm delighted to welcome Avery Cunningham to the program today to discuss her debut novel, The Mayor of Maxwell Street, which is published by Hyperion. A native of Jackson, Tennessee, and now a resident of Memphis, Avery has crafted a tale set in the early 1920s in Chicago, as the wealthiest African-American families in the country have gathered for the funeral of the son of the richest black man in the nation. The family's daughter, Nellie Sawyer, only wants to become a journalist, but her parents have other plans for her future, as she chases after the most mysterious criminal in Chicago's underworld, the mayor of Maxwell Street. Avery, although the mayor of Maxwell Street takes place in Chicago in the early 1920s, you start the book with a prologue in Alabama. Who is Jimmy Blue Eyes, and what situation has he found himself in? Yes, so the prologue serves a couple of purposes to give more insight into the character of Jay Shorey, so the iteration that we know him as most prominently throughout the novel, to give some background as to his character and his story, and to give a bit of understanding to some of the decisions, very controversial decisions that he makes throughout the novel and later in the plot. But also, it's an opportunity to remind readers of the reality of 1920s, especially for African Americans. You know, this is a story of the highest caliber of black society. Um, It's a story of glitz and glamour and all the things that we love about 1920s narratives. But I didn't want the audience or the reader to forget for a moment what the 1920s really was for many black Americans and how Jim Crow was at its most prevalent and most violent at this time. So I wanted to start off readers with a, a bit of a an exhale, where this is the situation that most individuals were facing at this time, that the characters that we interact with, like Nellie, Sequoia, the members of this very prestigious and wealthy class, were a very small percentage. And so this is just a way to awaken readers to the reality of the situation in a historical context. And again, to try to inform some of the decisions that a character like Jay Shorey has to make later on. And to give a little bit more insight for Jimmy Blue Eyes, is this early iteration of him, this prologue is pretty much a dissection of the time, the last time he's at home in Alabama. He's a biracial young man, black young man, who's often ostracized, criticized, ridiculed for his complexion, for his heritage as a black person, but as most especially a biracial black person. And he ends up in a pretty dangerous situation where he has to make a choice between his pride and dignity and preserving his own life. And it ends up being a choice that threatens the lives of those he cares most about, not only his own. To emphasize, it's not a situation of his own choosing that he's put in. No, of course. It's another example of how, especially at this time in the era of Jim Crow, Black Americans are forced to accommodate different wants, different needs, different aspirations and ambitions outside of themselves in order just to preserve their own safety. He is put in a situation where, again, he has to really decide, am I going to, what he views as compromise myself to protect myself or, you know, defend what I feel are my own honors and dignity and respect to really preserve my own sense of self. And there are dangers in any choice he would make in that situation. There was no way to get out without there being a risk. Exactly, exactly. So the choice was really more of a moral choice in the end, because as you said, the danger would be there in in either situation. And I think when people read the prologue, that's something that really strikes them, is how, in a sense, hopeless a situation is for, for Jimmy Blue Eyes, this early, early version of Jay Shorey, and how much of a risk it was for him to make the choice that he ultimately did to preserve himself over even his own life. But I think the ramifications, how that one decision ends up impacting his family instead of him directly, that is something that really follows him throughout his entire journey and throughout the story as well, of how consequences for one's actions have ripples. And 
when he meets our main character, Nellie Sawyer, a little bit later, that becomes kind of one of the cornerstones of their dynamic and their relationship. In the South, we've heard these types of stories before. And at the beginning, I'm going, okay, what does this have to do with Chicago? And then we get to Chicago, and then it's a story I'm not very familiar with at all. It was a great joy to see a different aspect of the, the experience of African Americans in America. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. And that was one of one of the hopes and intentions. The story of the original Black lead in America is one that goes back, you know, hundreds of years. The background and traditions are incredibly dense and thorough and have so many different incredible layers and facets to them. However, it's a history that is certainly not popularly portrayed in the media and is rarely ever taught. When I began research for this novel and when the, you know, the inspiration first took me, I found myself being educated about my own history. And as someone who grew up in a relatively prominent upper middle class black community who thought I understood what this society was, thought I understood our culture and traditions, when I truly engaged in the research and the history, I understood how little, not that so much was kept from me, but just wasn't known at all. So my hope is that readers, of course, enjoy the story and, and the plot and, and all of the things that we love about a good novel. But I also hope that they view it as a kind of education, or at least the beginning of an education, where they can finish the novel and look up some of these individuals or these times or these places and learn more about not only Black history, but American history. 1921. World War I, the Great War, had just ended just before. It's the time period where Art Nouveau is giving way to Art Deco, just the very beginnings of the Harlem Renaissance beginning to kick off, but more importantly, just two years after the Red Summer of 1919. I believe that, that the fact that 1919 occurred and then you have this era that we see of this great prosperity and revelry, it's a kind of guild over much of the rest of the 1920s that Racial dynamics were pretty fraught during that time, and especially in Chicago. Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in America, most certainly during the 1920s. And the fact that you had the 1919 riots so close to the events of this book, I feel like a lot of that tension does leak into the interactions that a lot of these characters have and the situations that they find themselves in. I did find it interesting to see that they're at the beginning of the Great Migration, and then they actually had recruiters coming from the South trying to recruit African-American people to come back to the South to work. Yes, and this was not entirely a fictional scene. Those situations did happen. I have to, of course, credit The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. It's an incredible work. For those who aren't familiar, it's as thorough as can be accounting of the Great Migration from a historical context, a research context, but also in terms of just the personal narratives of the individuals who went through this incredible period in American history and made these massive journeys all over the country in search of better lives, more equitable lives, and lives that they can take some pride and safety in. And it was through her research that I learned that this was an actual situation where in the South, employers, entrepreneurs, business owners, leaders in business were starting to realize that due to the Great Migration, so many of their workforce was, was leaving the South. So they would actually send recruiters to places like Chicago to talk about all of the great ways they were improving the lives of African Americans in the South. But of course, it was all, all very superficial, which I thought was just an incredible bit of foolishness on their part, an incredible bit of folly to even allude to changes that are going to benefit African-Americans when African-Americans were leaving because of the violence and because of the oppression they were facing in the South. So that was a wonderful scene to write. I loved writing it and I loved kind of calling back to those situations that actually happened at the time. While Jim Crow was probably perfected in its highest form in the South, it was not unknown in other parts of our country as well. And one of the difficulties that presents is in the South, the codes were pretty well known and established. 
and things were a little bit more fluid elsewhere, and that could lead to a lot of danger for people. That was one of the great cruel ironies of the Great Migration, that so many African Americans, and I should say people of other demographics as well, fled the South thinking that they were going to go to environments and communities that would afford them a better and safer life, where they could live with some sense of equitability and accountability. But in truth, they were really going to these communities that enforced those same laws and those same strict guidelines, but not publicly. So you you had to understand the rules on a much more subtle level, which, as you said, it created a lot of danger, created a lot of opportunities for unintended mistakes or misunderstandings. But it also created this great myth of these progressive cities and progressive communities when the essence of Jim Crow was national and I do think you can feel it most deeply in places like Chicago, where the oppressive structures that kept certain people in certain areas were so ingrained in the systems that existed at the time and the corruption of cities like Chicago in the laws and just general understandings of this is the way things are. You don't question them. You don't bring them up. You don't talk about them. And like I said, it it creates this great myth. And it's sometimes very, very disheartening to read about Black Americans who come to places like Chicago expecting one thing, but then only to realize that this is essentially the same life that I was living back South, just under a new law, new names, and and a new environment. And it won't even do me the courtesy of naming itself. So that was an interesting kind of path to go down in the research and an element that I, I really wanted to portray in some form to the best of my ability in the novel. And Chicago must have been particularly confusing because there were so many different ethnicities there of European Americans and that they didn't even consider each other white at times. Right. When I talk about Chicago being one of the most segregated cities in America, that's not just black and white. It's it's all of the individual ethnicities from across Europe and Asia and South America and America itself. And yes, you're right. There were such specific categories that you were slotted into based very much on not only if you were Eastern European, but where in Eastern Europe did you come from? Not only where in Eastern Europe did you come from, but what religion did you practice? And all of these different specifications can be seen in different neighborhoods. Like, say, for example, the novel itself, our main character goes to the Greek Delta, which was the center of Greek life in Chicago for a very long time. She goes to the Polish Pinch, which was the center of Polish life for a very long time. Maxwell Street, the Maxwell Street Market is known for its great diversity, but the area of Maxwell Street was mostly Jewish until kind of the, I'd say around the 30s or 40s, it became more diverse and more Black Americans were moving to the Maxwell Street area. But yes, it is confusing. And I love the great diversity of Chicago. I love how vibrant it is and how it creates such a textile of the country as a whole, but kind of viewed in miniature. But also it's a lot to understand for yourself, especially as a newcomer, when it's no longer so much black versus white, but every individual has to choose where they stand along ethnic lines, religious lines, cultural lines, and socioeconomic lines. And it creates a lot of conflict, especially for our characters. And for Jay Shorey, who is a man who in the North, without knowledge of his background, would what they call passing. Mm -hmm. And he had enough of a fractured background of his own that he could take opportunities in this country. Yes, exactly. And, you know, Jay is one of my favorite characters in the novel. He was one of the most fun to write because he's someone who decided for himself that he was never going to be held back by the oppressive laws and regimes of the country, that he saw that he could make a way for himself and that he would take those opportunities wherever they were presented. And that made him such such an interesting figure to write. And also with the 1920s, this was an era where the very strict social guidelines that governed, you know, the pre-World War I era were being stripped away. And 
it seemed at least that anybody who had the will and the gumption and the drive to step out of their caste could and create an entire new identity for themselves. And Jay really represents that essence of the 1920s. But also, as we discover that the American dream, the American dream as it was popularized during the 1920s, only exists for a very specific group of people. And even for Jay, as, as hard as he strived to dig himself out of what he feels like was the hole that he was born into, at every run on the ladder, he has to face another obstacle. He gets pushed back. He gets questioned or challenged or underestimated. And even in the end, it's really up for the reader to decide whether or not he achieved his goal or just dug himself a new hole. He represents the American romantic ideal of the rugged individual. But while he believes binds tie, binds also support. It's interesting that that you mentioned that. Jay is of the belief that relationships are important, but only as far as they can take you in life. That relationships are a means to an end. And I think, as you see in the prologue, a lot of His philosophy is built on that instance where his choice ended up costing someone he loved very dearly his life and well-being. And so he decides going forward, you know, I'm going to use the relationships I have to lift me up, but I'm not going to rely on them. I'm not going to trust them. I'm not going to show my true self to them because if I do, I may lose them. And that's a conversation that he, or multiple conversations really, he has with our main character, Nellie, where she is of a different belief that that you need to be open to people, you need to trust people, you need to be open with me, someone who's your friend. And he refuses because he knows as soon as he opens that side of himself, he's going to have to take some accountability and not only allow him to trust others, but then that person knowing everything they could possibly know about him will have to trust him in turn. Because as Francis Bacon said, knowledge is power and it is a a strong currency in the city. Oh, yes, certainly. And that's one of the great myths of Chicago, the, the level of corruption and how knowing people and knowing secrets is how one gets ahead in that city. Being able to use secrets against others is how one gets ahead in this city. And I'm a great fan of all the 1920s and and mafia and gangster movies. So writing in that element was a lot of fun for me. But it also, with with the essence of, of knowledge is power and how much knowledge is a currency in this city, it really shines a light on how certain secrets are kept very much under wraps and very close to the chest. Even though to know something about someone, to know something about a certain area or a certain time frame or a certain benefit to someone else, that everyone has these terrible secrets that they keep very, very close to their chests. And everyone is at risk of, if they step out of line, then they may, you know, step out forever if even just one of their secrets are exposed. We've mentioned Nellie Sawyer a few times, and she is the main character of the novel. And her family has come to Chicago in 1921, and this is not your traditional great migration narrative. A quick disclaimer, people have asked if Nellie and her family are based off real figures from history, and I should say they're not based off exactly real figures, but more of a history that could have been. Nellie's family are incredibly wealthy. They are alleged to be the wealthiest black family in the country, and they breed racehorses out of Kentucky. They're part of the Kentucky horse racing tradition. And for those that might not be aware, the history of Kentucky horse racing is really diverse and has really been driven by black Americans. Some of the first jockeys in America were black. Some of the best jockeys in America were black. Some of the best trainers in America were black. And black Americans were really at the forefront of that industry for a very long time, of course, until Jim Crow. And certain Americans began looking around and thinking, well, we can't have this and began putting up the unspoken rules and regulations that limited how black Americans could be at the forefront of Kentucky horse racing. 
So yes, while her family is not based exactly on real people, they're based off of a real tradition that could have thrived if given the room to do so. And her family is in Chicago at the start of the novel for a pretty sad situation, a funeral, the funeral of her brother. And this puts Nellie in a brand new situation individually. She goes from being the youngest child of the family, the virtually unknown and ignored child of the family to the presumed heir. And so this opens up a lot of opportunities for her, a lot of doors, a lot of interest, but also puts a very bright spotlight on her and her future and her legacy. And we see her kind of come to terms with her own place in her family story over the course of the novel. She goes from resenting it to wanting to protect it, to reconciling herself with it. And Another question for the reader is, by the end, do we feel that Nellie has really stepped into her own? Or has she built kind of a new cage for herself within, you know, the essence of who her family is and, and who it could be? And you think about the astonishing nature of her father's rise to success in this field because Kentucky was one of the last states to emancipate the enslaved people there because the Emancipation Proclamation only applied to Confederate states. So states that did not secede actually held on to enslaved people for quite a bit longer. So it's less than 60 years after emancipation, he's become the wealthiest African-American person in the country. It's meant again to show what could have been if individuals were allowed to stand firmly in their power and in their abilities and their competencies. And it's an element that I really enjoy because it shows African-Americans, Black Americans through a window that we don't see very often, especially in this time period. We do not see Black Americans in popular media, at least, as wealthy or esteemed or prestigious or being nouveau riche at this time. Certainly never perceived as being the wealthiest anyone in the country, never mind the wealthiest Black people in this country. And so this was just a chance, I feel, for readers to have a new understanding of how Black Americans could be viewed in popular media, especially novels. And you did name check one of the the richest women in America at the time, Madam C.J. Walker. Yes, of course. Of course. I try to be as, let's see, democratic as possible with my cameos. As I said a little bit earlier, I want this to be in part an education, a chance for people to take it upon themselves to learn more about these individuals. So with that, I wasn't able to include Madam C.J. Walker as much as I would have liked. She was in New York at the time. So it was a little bit different in terms of actually getting down to the nitty gritty of plot and outlining and, and things like that. But I loved to be able to include, if not those individuals specifically, at least their names. So readers who were unaware, and even those who were were intimately aware, could see and understand and kind of feel an appreciation for having those individuals represented in in a novel of this size. And Nellie has published several pieces in the Chicago Defender under a different name, but I did think Nellie, Nellie Bly, being such a a big journalistic influence at the time. Right. It it was unintentional, but that's a nice association to make. I think that would be wonderful to bring up in a book club conversation. And also there's a character uh, with the last name of Harjo, and it makes me think of Joy Harjo, the former poet laureate of the United States. Right. That's right. That's right. Again, wonderful, wonderful conversations. I, I think this book is chock full of opportunities for readers to really discuss every element of the story from the names to the settings, the locations to where characters go, what they see, what they feel, what they understand. It really is a really fertile ground for discussion. Now, with the automobile accident that led to her older brother Elder's passing, this has become an occasion to rally the wealthiest families in the country to come and join together. One of the main plot points is that wealthy African-American families are coming together in Chicago in an attempt to build a real coalition, a real society in and of themselves that can have national influence instead of simply being pockets of individuals in different cities throughout the country to 
bind themselves together into a party that has a lot of power, into a community that has a lot of influence, not just within their individual cities or communities, but on a more worldly stage. And that's one of the kind of currents that Nellie is drawn into, all of these influential families, you know, trying to create marriages between them, partnerships, collaborations to build this, this national influence. And her being so incredibly wealthy and having such a great legacy to live up to, she becomes a bit of a rising star, much to her And there are those that wonder, should they approach things in this manner? Because it seems very similar to the white aristocracy and how they do things. And is it necessarily the best to emulate those people? Right. Well, I think that's that's a conversation that just exists in the African-American diaspora in terms of how much is our culture and our, our identity and how much is based off of the culture and identity of those that enslaved us. And I think one of the great elements of that conversation is understanding that we are Americans and some of the traditions and cultures that we embody are American traditions, cultures that we can own for ourselves and claim for ourselves. But also it's a very valid point. Should we have any relationship, especially at this time, to a society and a group and an identity that was determined to view us as non-existent, as less than human. So it's hard to choose an exact lane where, where anyone can fall within that conversation. But it's a conversation that was certainly being had by Black Americans at the time and prior, and I think even to this day. In many stories over time, if a new person joins a social group, it's advantageous to have a, a sarcastic person who's kind of on the periphery to introduce them and kind of show them the ways and in a more um, explicit way. Sequoia MacArthur she serves that purpose here. She has everybody's number in this group. Right, exactly. And she does serve a bit of that that role of the the guide, the plucky, extravagant guide for our more introverted and solemn character into this new community and this new identity. But Sequoia is a bit more complicated than that in the sense that she is also an outsider who is trying very, very hard to maintain all the illusions of a high-level insider. As readers will discover throughout the novel, her network is one she created for survival, in a sense. A lot of readers talk about how Sequoia's fashion is so extravagant and incredible for the time period. She wears some of the best clothes in the book. But upon you know a deeper reading, you understand that most of Sequoia's fabulous clothes were bartered for or won or traded in some way. The parties that she's invited to are parties that she has invites to only through favors. She presents herself as this really representative of the flapper age, very, as I said, plucky, very ambitious, very much a life of the party. So individuals want to be around her. So she has the opportunities to create those relationships. She presents herself as someone who people want to have at certain parties that people want to have in the room. So she is a guide for Nellie, but she's also in some ways on Nellie's side in in criticizing this community that they're a part of because both of them are struggling in some form or fashion to be accepted. And Sequoia has just decided that in order to be accepted, I must become whoever this group wants me to be, whoever the person in front of me needs to see in order to give me an opportunity, in order to open a door for me. And Jay is very similar. That And most characters, as you discover in the novel, are all individuals trying to break in, break out, or to stay firmly placed in some kind of institution. And you learn that these institutions, with all their faults and all their benefits and all their great strides and great deeds are institutions. And to be an outsider in any sense is, in a way, a threat to these institutions. She gets some of her standing in the community through her father, who's a very prominent minister. How does Jay get his entree into the elite Black society in Chicago? His introductions also come through 
an older figure for him. It's a mentor. Another cameo, Daniel Jackson. For those who aren't familiar, Daniel Jackson was a pretty prominent African-American gangster in the 1920s. Um, when we think of prohibition in Chicago at this time, of course, we think of the Italians and Al Capone and the Chicago outfit. But Black Americans were also a part of this entire new industry in the United States and the industry of organized crime. And Daniel Jackson was a pretty prominent member of that community. And he takes Jay under his wing and kind of makes those connections and opens those doors so he can have access to these upper calibers of, of Black society. But as Jay really discusses, especially with, with characters like Sequoia, even though he had the right mentor, the right introduction, the right clothes, the, the right name, he still was not given full access. He had to prove himself in a lot of ways. And I feel like Jay is, is very bitter about that fact. Now, his name in Alabama was Glass, and there is a certain transparency that he cultivates. Yes, exactly. He essentially is transparent. As, as the character says himself, he becomes whoever the person making the decisions needs him to be. What others may view as confidence is, is just a great act on his part. And when he discusses his time passing even, Nellie is a, is a character who has a very passionate feeling about Jay's ability to pass. She thinks it's a bit of a betrayal. And she asks him, you know, do you want to be them? Do you want to be like them? And he says, no, but I want their opportunities. And if this is the way for me to exist freely in the world, to move through the world without being assaulted or challenged or threatened, then I'm going to take that opportunity because where I need to go, identifying fully as a black man is not always going to get me there. Now, there is another young man that comes into the orbit of Nelly Sawyer, and his name is Tomas Escalante y Roche. That's a heck of a name. Yeah, and you pronounced it perfectly. My Spanish is horrendous. So <laughs> I've never actually taken a chance of pronouncing it out loud, but the audiobook narrator does a great job. And he has a very unique backstory himself. Yes, and he is also based not directly off of a family, but more of an identity. There was a really prominent family in Mexico during the time. And forgive me, as I said, my Spanish is horrendous. I'm going to try to pronounce his name as best of my ability. Escondani Baron was the name of the really clan is more an accurate word than a family of very, very wealthy and prominent Spanish-Mexican, French-Mexican aristocracy that had a lot of wealth and power and land control in Mexico and throughout Europe as well. And he was inspired a bit by that family and by that particular legacy. He is essentially aristocracy. He has family roots in aristocracy in Spain and France, but also his family are very prominent landowners in Mexico. They've held governing positions in Mexico, have been a part of different powerful regimes. And he is essentially the what some describe him as a bit of a prince. He has all of these great things going for him, great kind of additions to his, his wonderful resume. And he does enter Nellie's orbit and offers her a look at another kind of life. As she describes seeing him and his home and understanding his background, her family was trying so hard to get a head start. He was the head start. His family measured their wealth in decades, in centuries where her family was still just trying to get a hold on on you know the last 10 years. He does give her a different view of what wealth could look like on a more global scale, but he's also someone who has to still face issues of racism and especially colorism and ethnic racism. His father may be considered European and Mexican aristocracy, but his mother as we discover in the novel was a Mexican Indian, indigenous, and he has faced his own kind of conflicts and realizations over how his mother was treated and how he was treated in turn. And so it just is another proof. And, and I talk about this a lot when readers ask me, you know, what lesson do you want readers to take 
from this novel. And for me, that lesson is that that wealth will not save you, that the right name or the right background, the right ambition, the right love will not save you from the challenges that exist on a systemic level, that the change that is needed is greater than one individual ambition. But these characters, what they have to ask themselves is, am I still going to risk it all to have my own happiness? Or am I going to do what is necessary to challenge that that bigger threat so everyone can exist on an equitable scale? Or will I just kind of fight for my own right to exist? There was a proverb back in the early 20th century, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, in which first person would amass the wealth, next generation would get the wealth, and the third generation would squander the wealth. Right. For a lot of other communities, they were lucky to get three generations from their wealth. Right. And that's a legacy that all of these characters have to deal with in some form or fashion. Now, it's an interesting contrast between Tomas and Jay Shorey and the fact that Jay is very much oriented toward his own survival and self. And Tomas has that larger view of history for his family. And he had a lot of advantages and privileges that Jay didn't. But he also does view that he has responsibilities as well. Right, exactly. And that's a really great contrast to bring up. And it's interesting, Jay is trying to break into this grand society, and Thomas, in a way, is trying to break out of it. He's so frustrated with it, in a way, but he does have that understanding that, well, the only way for me to make a difference within the structure that has, you know, abused the ones I, I love and, and made me feel so conflicted about my own identity, I can only change it from within. I can only be a part of, of the system to correct the problem, where, you know, as you mentioned, Jay is more like, I'm not trying to fix anything. I'm just trying to get in the room. I'm just trying to to get into this opportunity and close the door behind me to save myself. And that's an interesting juxtaposition for for Nellie, who has these two individuals who who play really prominent roles in her life because of where she is as a black woman, but also as an, an exceptionally wealthy black woman. She has to decide, what do I dedicate myself to? My my legacy and changing the world from within these great structures like Tama does? Or doing what is necessary to ensure my own, not just survival, but my own prosperity and my own success without carrying the suffering of others like Jay does. The family is nouveau riche, and they have not arrived yet on society scene. And they view that as an important piece of preserving the legacy and the generational wealth of the family. And so with her brother having recently passed, all the pressure is now on Nellie. That's a responsibility she never expected to bear. And especially at the start of the novel, that's a responsibility that she really resents. She does not want to be this darling of society. She does not want to be paraded about and participate in all of these, what she feels are really nonsensical displays of wealth and prestige and prosperity and, and pomp and circumstance. She's a young person who wants to bring about change. She is intimately aware of the issues that are faced outside of the really protective bubble of her privilege. And she desperately wants to be a part of the systems that are that are changing that, that are fighting for individuals and fighting for the rights of others. So now being the spotlight of this family, the hope of this family, essentially, really brings out a lot of resentment in her, a lot of anger in her, and causes her to make some pretty reckless decisions to kind of escape that that yoke that she feels. It's up to readers really to see whether she does eventually embrace that responsibility or if she, you know, fights it the entire time. Because she seemingly read every issue of every black newspaper published in America for the last 30 years up to that point. Well, and in essence, I, I tried to name drop a little bit to, to let individuals know that there's more than just the Chicago Defender. A lot of individuals do not think that there's more than just the Chicago Defender. But even with her knowledge of how tenuous her family's position is in, the, in a majority white society, she is still very naive about how bad people behave. Right, exactly. And that is due to her privilege. 
you cannot kind of explain away the realities of someone who has lived almost her entire life very much protected in her family's wealth and their position. She was raised mostly on a very secluded ranch. She has had everything she's ever needed provided for her. Her interactions with the realities of life in America have been from a distance, have been as a viewer and not as an active participant. So when she does decide, okay, I'm going to throw myself headfirst into, you know, this really dangerous and gritty and violent world of Prohibition era Chicago, she has you know, several stark realizations and understandings that, that these are people's lives, that you're part of the arena now. And the choices you make are not just the choices of, you know, a benevolent viewer. They're the choices of those that affect others' lives, that your choices have ripples. And she has to come to terms with that. And I intentionally wrote her that way because I wanted her to go on that journey. I wanted readers to to see that journey with her because even with her intelligence and with her empathy and with her desire to do good, she is still a child of privilege. And that bias is not easily removed just through, you know, extensive reading. I wanted to mention that to show that there was a greater world for journalism for African-Americans than the Chicago Defender, but we're in Chicago, so the Defender is going to have to come into this. Of <laughs> so how does she become a writer for the Defender? She starts off writing anonymously. She is observing different issues and concerns of Black Americans just in her travels and her daily life. And she writes, you know, little write-ups and little pieces about these issues and these narratives that she sees. And she sends them to the Chicago Fender anonymously. And she's been doing so very successfully for a long time. But once she's in Chicago, she is given the opportunity to kind of shuck off the anonymity to write under her own name and to truly claim her own stories and her own words for the Chicago Defender. And that's what drives her to really search for our titular character, the mayor of Maxwell Street, this opportunity to really prove herself and prove that she can be a more flexible journalist, a journalist that has what's necessary to tell the really hard stories. The first interaction she has with the editor and publisher of the paper is really amusing. Yes, yes. And it's funny, Richard Norris, who's inspired by the, the actual founder of the... Mr. Abbott? Yes, yes. The actual founder of the Chicago Defender and the chief editor of the Chicago Defender. That's Richard Norris's inspiration. And it's just another instance of a character, I feel like, telling Nellie, you don't know what you're getting into, and her insisting, even if I don't, I need this opportunity. Test me, I, I will prove myself. I want to prove myself. And it was a great interaction to write. I love Nellie's determination, even if it's shaded with a fair amount of naivety. She comes from a good place. And facing off with someone like Richard Norris, who underestimates her once he knows who she is, underestimates her because of her wealth and her upbringing, underestimates her because she's a woman, underestimates her because she's so young. And in every instance, she's determined to fight back against those stereotypes about her, often to, to her own, I won't say demise, but I'll say peril. <laughs> well, because there are a few instances in which her naivete goes toward being cavalier. Right, exactly. She's incredibly reckless. And I loved writing that about her. I love reckless characters. I love characters who who see something they want and say, well, I'm going to go for it, come what may. And it, from a storytelling perspective, it puts those characters in really kind of delicious and fraught and tension-laden situations. And I, I love putting Nellie in those, those types of environments. But I do hope that readers feel that she has learned from those instances and that she is, if not attempting to hold herself more accountable, is more aware of what her recklessness will do, not only to herself, but to others. There are a lot of whispers and there are a lot of shadows. Based on these kind of whispers and shadows, what portrait of the mayor of Maxwell Street, the person, can you give us to kind of know what this phantom is that we're chasing? 
So the mayor of Maxwell Street, in essence, is a proprietor of secrets. This is an individual who uses knowledge about others to to intimidate, to bribe, to threaten, who's a more prominently a link through all of these different ethnic groups and of organized crime in, in the city. We talked about a little bit earlier when she meets Richard Norris, who describes the mayor of Maxwell Street as someone who is bringing all of these different individual sex and individual outfits together across race lines. And now they're working together, they're conspiring together, and how much of a threat that could be to the status quo. And the mayor of Maxwell Street, he he dwells in that era of relationships, but he's virtually unknown. He's someone that no one claims to have ever seen, claims to have ever spoken to directly. It's believed even that he's just a myth, a kind of representation of this collaboration and cooperation that they're seeing between different ethnic groups. But that's what Nellie is, is searching to truly understand. Is the mayor of Maxwell Street a person or is, is he more just a manifestation of, of the changing world? There's a band I like a lot and I really enjoy their lyrics and it just made me think of one of their lines, among the low whispers are voices you know. Heaven is a long ways away, a long, long ways away. Oh, that's just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> when the phrase black and tan comes up, a lot of people just think of an alcoholic beverage. Some people will know the history of the Republican Party and African Americans were called black and tan Republicans back in the day. But what was the black and tan party? So a black and tan party is essentially a unsegregated celebration that was really, really, really popular in the 1920s, most especially in kind of the Harlem area, where... These were celebrations that were open to multiple races, specifically black and white. And you see black and tan discussed a lot with restaurants and clubs like the Cotton Club, where they might be described as a black and tan institution, where the proprietors are black, it's created for a black audience, but you'll have a lot of white Americans coming to see the shows, to be participants, to be actively involved in this culture. And there is a way where you can see that the essence of the Black and Tan Party became a bit watered down after a while, where you might see white Americans going to certain venues or events more to gawk than to participate. But in this essence, the Black and Tan Party can be viewed as just a desegregated party, where different races can mix freely without the fear and concern that their interactions are going to produce you know, some terrible some terrible conflict. One of the ways in which her gumption and naivete pay off is that she is not impressed by Tomas's aristocratic family, and right. she gives honest opinions to him. That was something really wonderful to, to include, that she truly does not want to be a part of this essence of high society. What, and well, I should say, she likes the safety net of her family and their position, but she does not like the circus of what it means to be in that position, the responsibilities that come with being in that position. And so she's not impressed by Tomas. She, she's not immediately stunned by his wealth or his titles or his glittering education. And she calls him out on that. And Tomas really appreciates that in her after existing so long as a bit of a novelty, especially outside of his country outside of his family as being seen as just, you know, this curious, dark-skinned rich boy. And she sees him for who he is. And I think he tries to give her the same courtesy. And you even open the door to the Black Jewish experience in America as well. Right, exactly. Um, we do have a Black Jewish character. And Maxwell Street was so incredibly diverse, especially the market. This representation felt very appropriate for that area and that neighborhood in this time period. Now, you've mentioned a couple of true-life historical personages who've appeared in the book. Are there any others you'd like to tell us about? I love Dan Jackson. He's one of my favorite characters. I, I loved portraying him and doing research into him. Another little-known member of 
black organized crime at the time of the 20s was a character named Pony Moore. He was known for his saloons and a little bit of racketeering, and he was involved in some really interesting scandals involving certain houses of ill repute in his youth. And he was just another really fascinating character that, that people are unaware of. It's alleged that he wore a diamond padlock to the front of her shirt. From what I could see, no one could tell why he did that, but it's just really quirky and interesting characterizations of this real person who makes for a really, you know, interesting and, and fascinating side character in the novel. And he showed up in two very different social circumstances. He did. He did. So that's, I believe, a real example of how individuals, we talk about code switching, but how, especially in, in this era with all these different subgroups, you have to learn how to be a little bit fluid in order to, to truly get ahead in any broad sense. But yes, Ponymore is definitely one. Robert Pelham, Robert Pelham Jr. makes an appearance. He's the founder of the Detroit Blaine Dealer, another really very prominent paper. Estelle Clough makes a really brief appearance. And for those who aren't aware, she was one of the first really prominent Black opera singer. She was the first Black Aida, essentially. And I am a lover of that entire property. I love Aida as an opera, as a musical, as a story. So including her, even though she just makes kind of a background appearance, was, was a lot of fun for me. Ethel Waters? Yes, of course, of course. Ethel uh, Waters and, and Black Swan Records make an appearance. And for those who aren't familiar, Black Swan Records was one of the first record companies to produce albums targeted towards the Black audience. They're out of Harlem. And they were incredibly successful, even though they, they only were in operation from 1921 to 1923. They sold more records than any Black-owned record company well into the 1950s. So including another bit of that, that wonderful history, wonderful Black history especially, was a lot of fun. I just happened to watch Cabin in the Sky for the first time the other day. She was just amazing. In it. Yes. Oh, she's such an incredible talent. And I wish I could write an entire novel on each of these individuals because their lives are just so rich and fantastic and integral to truly American identity, American culture. This was truly a golden age of newspapers in America. It seemed like every city of any size had at least a half dozen broadsheet newspapers. I'm sure that made research just fascinating to have so much source material available. It did. And also made research incredibly overwhelming. Because you have so many different perspectives, it was great in the sense that you could capture a lot of insight that you could pass on to individual characters, but it also made it difficult to create or to capture the exact tone that an entire community or entire country could have on a certain issue because there were so many publications printing, you know, really passionate and thorough explanations for their own their own ideals. So it did make it incredibly fascinating, a great way to see what, what individuals living in this time and this place really cared about, what they valued, what entertained them, what enraged them. But then you're kind of inundated with just this great wave of information, this great wave of opinion that as a writer of fiction, eventually you kind of have to wade through to some manner of through line so you can have that incorporated into the greater story. All those different perspectives, I hope, helped the, the complexity you've drawn all these characters with. There are very few people who are just kind of NPCs, as kids would say from video games today. Everyone has two or three things that they're motivated by, and they may have cross-purposes in that. For this depth in character and detail and, and research, this is also a page-turner. Oh, thank you. I mean, this book flies. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so glad you think so. 
I suppose now, especially now that I'm a published author, I have to start describing myself as something. I, I suppose I would describe myself as a writer of suspense. I love suspenseful narratives. I love stories that move at a clip. And I tr did try to capture that sense in the Merrick Maxwell Street. And also to pay homage to all of the, you know, gangster narratives that we love of this era that are incredibly propulsive, that, that move constantly. And I really wanted to capture that, that essence as part of the kind of the larger conversation about how the media portrays the 1920s. But also, I really value a forward-moving story. I believe I really value a story filled with tension and intrigue. Those are the stories that I love to read and consume. And so that was a story I, I really strive to tell. And it's great to hear that, that you thought it was a page turner. I know I've spoken to a lot of readers where they'll, where they'll pick it up and they'll say, well, the 500 page is a little intimidating. But once I got started, it really flew by. <laughs> well, Nellie was sheltered and naive in her way. And I just want to know how you came to live such a peripatetic life. I'm glad you think so. It's felt incredibly ordinary to me. Well, I grew up in, in Jackson, Tennessee, which is about an hour outside of Memphis. And that's where I lived most of my life, all the way up until college, where I went to DePaul University in Chicago for my undergrad and graduate school education, and then just came back to Memphis, back to this area. I'm about, goodness, five or, or six years ago, some big number like that. If your question is, how did I come to, to live this kind of life? The easiest answer would be through the support of my family, most specifically my mother. She saw in me a passion for storytelling and writing from the earliest age. We always tell this story when I was maybe three or four years old. Before I really understood what language was, I would tell stories. She talks about how I would stand on the stool in our kitchen and I would just orate what our what my teachers used to call preaching. Um, but in truth, I was just telling stories. It's just entirely stream of consciousness, fully formed epics in, in my little three-year-old mind. And she saw me doing this. And instead of being a parent who, you know, would try to hush me or move me on to some other what she would view as, or what a parent might view as um, um, productive use of my time or my my education or my learning, she really supported all of those moments. She wrote down my stream of consciousness stories that are being told by a three-year-old, and she kept them and valued them and encouraged me. So any opportunities I had to live an unsheltered life, but still a protected life, a secure life, is, is due to, to her and the sacrifices that she's made. Now, if you can think back to the, the day that you drafted the first sentence for this story and to this very moment, how has your feelings and thoughts about writing changed? Oh, wow. That is a very interesting question. I have to give myself a moment. Sure thing. When I first started ideating and, and writing The Mayor of Maxwell Street, I don't think I really had a great vision of what, of what it could be, what kind of story that it should be, the kind of responsibility that writing about this period takes on. I think initially I was trying to write something or aspire to write something essentially, you know, a little bit lighter, a little bit a little bit more boozy, a little bit more flashy, a little bit more of the you know quintessential 20s tale. But as I really dived into the research, I understood what the 1920s meant for America and for Black Americans especially. And it changed my view of the responsibility that historical fiction writers especially have for the stories that they're telling. That as opposed to even contemporary literature or any kind of fiction, you're not just writing about one individual's moment or one, one kind of still life of a person's longer experience. When you're writing historical fiction, especially about this time, you're writing about a very, very fraught history. You're writing about the complexities of human existence and how where we've come from, who we are, who our families are, what our individual legacies are, are part of a much greater, more complex tapestry. And 
as I really started writing and has gone as I've gone through this entire process of leading up to debut year and and everything like that, I really came to understand and respect that level of responsibility. That if I want to be a writer, to put it a bit more clearly, I, someone asked me once with everything that's going on socially in this climate and how it feels like everyone should have some type of role in making things better and being a social advocate. And someone asked me, you know, how are you doing that? And it's through my writing. And I feel like all writers should feel that way, that this is our means of affecting change in the hopes that someone will read our, our books and be more aware, be more empathetic, be more self-reflective. And this experience has taught me that that is the goal that you should aspire to with every book, not just to tell a great story, which is, of course, paramount, but also to leave some kind of positive mark that can improve the lives of those that are yet to come. A little bit of sugar makes the medicine go down easier. Romance and some gunplay and everything can right. definitely help. Well, we couldn't, we could not have a lack of guns in the <laughs> 1920s. But also, historical fiction is also a commentary on the time that it's written, mm -hmm. not just the time it covers. So what are some themes do you think that came to mind as you were telling the story? Well, of course, I think the ideal of an American dream was one of the major themes. And I've talked about before how some of the inspiration for the Mayor of Maxwell Street are the themes brought up in, you know, The Great Gatsby, which is kind of the novel of the 1920s. And where I feel that The Great Gatsby is, you know, an analysis of, of the American dream, the Mayor of Maxwell Street sets out more to expose it as a kind of mythos that is passed off to people to keep them part of the race, part of the infrastructure, but without really making those opportunities that are promoted within the American dream possible. I think that's one of my biggest themes of this era, that yes, it was a time of great wealth, great possibility that anyone who could or anyone who had the ability could make anything of themselves, but also acknowledging that in order to make those strides, you have to make a lot of decisions that lead to moral sacrifices and compromising yourself. And that was one of the greater themes, I feel like, really pushing back on this romanticized ideal we have of the 20s. You have an appearance coming up in our local bookstore novel. Yes. When is that taking place? Yes. So January 30th, that's a Tuesday, we'll have the official launch event, including a reading, a book signing, signing, excuse me, and a conversation with fellow Memphis author Tara Stringfellow, who wrote the bestselling novel Memphis. And again, that's January 30th. We'll get started. Doors open at 5 p.m. Um, the event will start proper at, at 6 p.m. and go till about 7. And it'll be just a great opportunity to discuss the book even more and, you know, just celebrate this story and celebrate this occasion. Will there be any bathtub gin? No, I'm afraid not. We, we, we don't have clearance to serve any manner of alcohol, most especially bootleg alcohol. <laughs> well, and it hardly seems fair to ask you, are you working on anything right now? Nothing I can announce, but hopefully in, in the not too distant future, I'll be able to, to talk more about upcoming projects. Well, Avery, I want to thank you so much for stopping by and sharing the mayor of Maxwell Street with us. It's been very much a pleasure. Oh, thank you. This has been wonderful. It's truly an honor to be a part of this program. Avery Cunningham is the author of the novel, The Mayor of Maxwell Street, which is published by Hyperion. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee. 38111 or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 license for the United States. 
you are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.